Good morning, great men and women of God. This past week, uh, as Susie referenced, uh, was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King. It's amazing to think, 50 years. And uh, one of the things I found out about this week was that there was a rally downtown on Wednesday to kind of honor him. And I thought, I want to be there. I mean, 50 years. I don't want to be there at year 49. or four. I, I want to I go there, and I want to support and be a part of that. And so I went downtown with some of my friends and... Um, we were at this rally, and this rally was downtown, middle of the day, sun's out, hour long, um, different people are sharing, some different faith traditions we're sharing, uh, uh, some different uh, expressions of faith, different groups. I tell you, I, if you ever want to feel, if you're white and you ever want to feel how white you are, go stand at a rally for Dr. King for 45 minutes and then get a raging sunburn. And it's just a reminder that, okay, I, I need to think different. Some of the things that, that helped me during that time was to look and see that some people's expression of what it means to follow Jesus looks different than mine. It helped me to realize that some people's experience of what it looks like to be an American is different than mine. It's good for me to learn and be around that. There were different people that were speaking and they were sharing uh, some of Dr. King's writings. They were sharing some different, uh, some people sang, they did some different things. One, one woman though, really, her her time of sharing really captured me because she shared for a little while some different things, but she said this. She said, you know, if we just simply gather here in a park to stand around and remember and honor Dr. King, but it doesn't change the way that we live. It doesn't change the way that we vote. It doesn't change the way that we act. It doesn't change the way that we treat one another. Then it's like going to church on Easter, but denying the resurrection is real. That really, that really cut to me because there I was standing in the park and I was kind of there to, to honor and, and to remember. And then I thought, wow, there's this call to action. It's not just about remembering, it's about acting. And I started thinking about us here at Pulpit Rock. And we gather together on a Sunday and we're gathered to, to honor and to remember and to celebrate Jesus Christ. And last Sunday we celebrated Easter. We all gathered. There was, uh, excuse me, 16, I don't know, it snorted there. Um, <coughs> There was like 1,600 people gathered this last weekend in this building to gather and say, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if it doesn't change the way that we live, what's the point? And I think the point is, is that the resurrection has to have feet in our lives. As we saw last Sunday, the resurrection tells us that there's a bigger story out there. And the bigger story is our God reigns. If you remember, we use that image of the window and saying we're kind of like inside this burned out mansion and it's dark and it's sooty and all we have is this window and it's kind of cracked and on the other side is an amazing sunrise. And what the resurrection did is it cracked the window and it said, hey, look what's happening. The sun is rising. It's not always going to be dark like this. And this little story that we thought life was about has been eclipsed by this bigger story. And history is moving towards a mountain. It is moving towards a promised land. It is moving towards a place where the streets have no name. The question is, though, so what does it look like not to just celebrate it? What does it look like as people of the resurrection to live out this bigger story? I thought it would be fun this month to go back in time and see how some of the first followers of Jesus Christ wrestled with the reality of the resurrection. 
I mean, think for a minute. Some of us uh, are, are, would say they follow Christ. Some of you may say you don't follow Christ. But at least we got a couple of thousand years of people following Christ to look back from. And these first few years, a few decades after Christ, they're still figuring this stuff out. They're still trying to confuse. Wait a minute, he rose from the dead. What does that mean? They're still sorting out theology. They're still trying to understand what's going on. And so I thought it'd be fun to see how they did that. So what I did is this. I selected the four shortest letters in the New Testament. Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And over the next four weeks, I want to look at these letters and really ask the question, how, how are these people wrestling with the resurrection and seeing it play out in their lives? So if you've ever said, gosh, I wish I went to a church that would teach through an entire book of the Bible, we're going to teach through four in a month. So that's great. There you go. Now this morning, we're going to start a book called Philemon. And what we're going to see is one man is going to challenge his friend. And he's going to challenge him with this. He's going to say, look, if the resurrection is real, it ought to change the way you treat people. But what he's going to ask is going to be a pretty big request. So turn with me to the letter called Philemon. Now, if you downloaded an app and you can find Philemon, that's great. Go to there. If you have a printout Bible, I call it, uh, then just go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and just right before it, it's a book of Philemon. Now, while you're turning there, let me kind of explain what's happening. There's a man who wrote this letter. This, we put it in the Bible, we call it a book, but it's actually just a copy of a letter we have. The author of this letter is a man named Paul. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't a follower of Jesus when he was alive, but after Christ died and rose again, Paul began to follow him. And he followed him so much that he's currently under house arrest in Rome. What is the charge? The charge is telling people to say, Jesus is Lord, instead of saying, Caesar is Lord. And that just wasn't legal. So he's in house prison and he's writing to a church that's meeting in the home of one of his friends, a man named Philemon, who lives in a town called Colossae, which we would look at and find on a map and say, oh, it's where Turkey is today. Okay. But what's really remarkable about this letter as we get into it is not necessarily who's writing it or who it's being written to or even what it's saying. What's remarkable to me is who is carrying this letter? Who's delivering it? You see, back in their day, you didn't just drop a letter into a mailbox. You would actually hand it to a courier, and the courier would take it. Well, the courier in this case, the person that's going to take this letter from Paul to Philemon is a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave of Philemon's. As we understand it, he used to be a slave for Philemon. He stole some money, and he ran away. And now he's the one delivering the letter. This is where the resurrection gets sticky. The gospel is never applied in a vacuum. It's always applied to real life things. This is why sometimes, I don't know if you get this, but someone will say, well, hey, hypothetically, um, if this was a situation, what do you think you would do? What do you, how do you think the gospel would apply? I really try to avoid hypothetical situations because I don't know. Give me a real life situation. Well, here's a real life situation. And what's happening here is this rising son of Jesus, this resurrection that has begun, that's beginning to change the way that people think about life, that's beginning to alter everything, is beginning to rise and shine its light on different parts of our lives. And this is one of the things that God does. Sometimes that sun begins to shine on parts of our lives where we're like, oh, I didn't know that was an issue. And that's what's about to happen to this man named Philemon. Now, let me give you a little bit of historical context here because I think our minds start racing one direction. When we talk about slavery in the first century, in the first century Rome, 
It's a little bit different than the kind of slavery we understand that took place in our country in 19th century America. The slaves here were people from all kinds of different races and all kinds of different backgrounds. Often they got into slavery here because they, they owed a debt to someone. And someone said, well, you, you owe me money for this stuff. Well, I don't have enough. Okay, why don't you come and be a servant in my house? Why don't you come and be a slave in my house, work for me for a year, and then you'll pay off your debt and go. Or perhaps the government might step in and say, you haven't paid your taxes. Well, I don't have any money. Okay, well, then you go work it off over here. It was a little bit more of the image of like Victorian England. In fact, people estimate that one-third of the Roman Empire, up to one-third, might have actually been slaves in this way. Don't let me erase it all. These people still weren't free. They didn't have the option to go out and choose their destiny and do what they want and vote like they wanted. No, no, they were not free. And so this man, Onesimus, who was working as a slave for Philemon, wanted to be free. And so he said, where can I go? He grabbed some loot and he took off and he ran. Where would he go? He remembered this one friend of his master's, a man named Paul, a man who often spoke about how uh, the resurrection of Christ changed everything. Onesimus didn't really understand all that, but he thought this man might be able to help him. And so he ran and he ran and he ran to Ephesus and he met with this man named Paul. And he sat with Paul. He spent some time with Paul. And after spending time with Paul, Onesimus came to a decision about his life. Paul came to a conclusion also. And both of them came to a question. So this is what we have here as we get into this book. We have the resurrection beginning to apply to a runaway slave, standing now at the door of his master, holding a piece of paper with a question on it. What's going to happen? My point is, it's a little messy. So what was on this letter to Philemon? Well, let's read it together. You can look along in your Bible. I'm just going to start here in verse 1. By the way, I want to remind you as we talk about uh, things in the Bible like this, uh, you know when Paul was writing, he wasn't like, okay, verse 1, verse 2. He wasn't doing that. We added those numbers later so it could help us know where we're talking about. But originally, this would have just been a letter. No numbers in there. It would have just been a letter saying, hey, here's from Paul. So here's this letter. He begins, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of King Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to our beloved Philemon, our colleague and partner, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our comrade in arms, and to God's people who meet in their house. May grace and peace be upon you from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. That's his opening. One thing I love about reading the Bible, I, I love this. I remember I'm reading historical documents. I, I'm reading actual events that took place. Paul is trying to apply the resurrection to real people. This is not a hypothetical. He's talking to Philemon. He's talking to Philemon's wife, Athea. He's talking to maybe Philemon's son or maybe his friend, Archippus, and this church that was meeting in his home. Back in this first century, people didn't have buildings like this where hundreds of people could gather. They would meet in homes. And Philemon was a church leader. Maybe he was the pastor of the church. Maybe it was just his house and he was providing it. But in any case, if he has a house kind of big enough for a big group to meet in, he's probably a pretty wealthy Roman citizen. Now, something that's interesting about this is that Paul normally likes to begin his letters by reminding people who he is. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ... It's a great way to start a letter because you can't really argue with the rest of everything that he says. But he doesn't do that here. He says, I'm Paul. I'm a prisoner for Jesus. 
This is really interesting because this is a very personal letter. He's not writing this letter as an authority. Philemon's not his employee. He says, you're my beloved Philemon. You're my colleague. You're my partner. That's a business term, meaning we formed a company together. What was the company they formed? It was called the Resurrection. And they both had stake in the stocks. They were both invested personally in this. Okay, we're in this thing together. And the reason I'm taking time to explain that is whatever Paul is going to say in this letter, he's not going to say it as a command. It's not going to come as a directive. It's not going to come as, well, uh, God said it, I believe it, so that settles it. It's going to come as something else. He's going to appeal to a bigger story. And since he's going to appeal to a bigger story, he wants to remind Philemon of something that's true about him before he even gets to the request. Now look in verse 4. Philemon, I always thank God whenever your name comes up in my prayers because I've heard of your love and your faithful loyalty towards the Lord Jesus and all God's people. And my prayer, whenever I pray for you, what I'm praying for you right now is this. My prayer is this, that this partnership which goes with your faith may have its powerful effect. Say that with me. Powerful effect is important. In realizing every good thing that's at work in us to lead us to the king. You see, my dear brother, your love gives me so much joy and comfort. You've refreshed the hearts of God's people. Do you know why we open every message here with good morning, great women and men of God? We are reminding and calling you to begin to view our lives in terms of our relationship with God. We're talking about identity. That's important. So what Paul's doing here, Philemon, let me remind you who you are. You are a person that has love and faithful loyalty towards Jesus. Your love has given me so much joy and comfort as I'm sitting in this prison. You have refreshed the hearts of God's people. Philemon, the resurrection really has changed your life. We can see it. People are different because you're different. But look back at verse 6. This partnership, my prayer is, this whole partnership in this company called We Believe in the Resurrection, we've, I'm praying that it's going to have a powerful effect in you. He's praying that this bigger story would have a powerful effect. I don't want you to gather once a week and celebrate this resurrection, this partnership. I'm praying for this powerful effect that something's going to happen. What he's saying is, I want you to really consider what I'm about to ask. Okay. I got you, Paul. What are you going to ask me to do? Verse 8. Because of all this, I could be very bold in the king. I could be. I could order you to do the right thing, but... Because of love. Say that with me. Because of love. I'd much rather appeal to you. Yes, it's me, Paul, speaking. I think he throws it in there because you're like, wait a minute, is this Paul? Like, Paul's usually telling everyone what to do. And he's like saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Is this Paul? Yes, this is me, Paul, speaking. Old man as I am, and now prisoner of King Jesus. I'm appealing to you about my child, the one I've fathered here in prison. Wait, What? Onesimus. Oh, okay. You're talking about him. I call him Mr. Useful. There was a time when he was useless to you, but now he's very useful to me, and he's also useful to you. So what he's saying here is, Paul, uh, Paul is saying to Philemon, I want you to do the right thing in regards to Onesimus. Now, apparently, in the time that Onesimus had spent with Paul, he had made a decision. And the decision was, I also believe in the resurrection. I also want to follow the Jesus that you're following, Paul. He's come to this faith. 
But this now presents a problem. Here's Paul sitting under house arrest or he's in a jail, one of these two situations, he's not free. And sitting here or next to him is this guy named Onesimus who is a runaway slave. That is illegal in the Roman Empire. The right thing to do, what the law would say to do is turn him in. What does Paul do? Does he follow Roman law and send this guy back to jail? Does he call for Roman centurions? Does he follow some kind of higher law and maybe, maybe tell this guy, hey, keep running, go free, you should be free? What does he do? What would you do? Now, Philemon, I mean, remember, Paul says, I could order you. I could tell you what to do as an apostle. I could be bold in the king. I could say, I, Paul, for the power invested in me by the Lord God, command you, and you have to do it. He says, but I'd rather do a different way. I want to appeal to a bigger story because of love. I think these words echo what Jesus said was the key mark of a disciple. Jesus said the number one way, without question, that people will know that you truly follow me is going to be in how you love others. So really what Paul is wrestling here with is a very straightforward question. What would love do? What does love require? What would be the most loving thing he could do for Onesimus, this runaway slave who's now come to faith in Christ, who's currently sitting as a free man, so to speak, What would be the most loving thing he could do for Philemon, his friend, his partner, his colleague in ministry? Here's his ask. Here's what he decided, verse 12. So I'm sending him, I'm sending Onesimus. Remember, he's actually the one going to be carrying the letter. I'm sending him to you for your decision. Yes, I'm sending the man himself. And this means I'm sending my own heart. I would have liked to keep him here with me so he could have been your representative in serving me in the chains of the gospel. I, this guy's useful to me. Man, he's, he's come to faith. He believes things. He's soaking things up. I mean, I could really use him here. But, verse 14, I didn't want to do anything without you knowing about it. This is your call. Why? That way, when you did the splendid thing that the situation requires, it wouldn't be under compulsion, but of your own free will. This is powerful. Paul is saying, Philemon, I'm not asking you to do what you have to do. I'm appealing you to do what you don't have to do. I want it to be your own decision. I want it to be a splendid decision that you come to on your own because you're asking, what does love require? Now, he does go on in verse 15 and says this. Now, look at it this way. Maybe this is the reason he was separated from you for a while so that you could have him back forever. And here's the splendid thing. What's the splendid thing? It's this. You could have him back no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave. What if he came back to you and he was your beloved brother, beloved especially to me, but now much more to you, both as a part of your household and in the Lord? I believe... That Paul is asking to Philemon, not only do I ask you to welcome him back, but I ask you to set him free, to make him equal to you, to make him a part of your house and a part of your church and a part of your life. Paul is asking Philemon to do what he didn't have to do. The splendid thing that the situation requires is to set this man free, not under compulsion, not because Paul said so, but because he chose on his own, I'm going to do what I don't have to do because I want to show a bigger story. Now, 
Go back to Philemon for a second. It's easy for us to go, well, of course that's the right thing. No, no, no. Why would Philemon do this? Think about this. If he welcomes Onesimus back and doesn't punish him, or even more, if he says, I'm going to set you free, what are all the other slaves in his house going to do? And remember, the law is on, Ones- on, on uh, Philemon's side. He, the law is at his side. He can punish this guy. He can do whatever he wants to with him. And the law would back him up. I mean, he's got society to think about. This is absolutely the law says what the right thing to do is. He has the entire weight of the Roman Empire behind him. And all this guy has is a piece of paper saying, please. Wow, why would he do this? Why would he even consider this? And this is where the rubber of the resurrection hits the road of our lives. Because the resurrection isn't just about what happens to you when you die. It's about the powerful effect it has on how you live. This is what moves the resurrection from being something that we remember and celebrate to something that has feet in our lives. The resurrection isn't just about what happens to you after you die. It's about the powerful effect it has on how you live. Now, Paul knows this powerful effect. He's in jail for this. If you remember some of Paul's story, remember he wasn't originally a follower of Christ. In fact, he used to go around imprisoning and killing Christ followers, and now he's in prison facing being killed for being what? A Christ follower. He knows that when you believe this bigger story, it changes things. It turns murderers into messengers. It turns runaway slaves into brothers. It turns slave owners into freedom givers. This is what he's saying in verse 6, this powerful effect in realizing every good thing that's at work in us to lead us to the king. The powerful effect of this bigger story of the resurrection is not learning things. It's not realizing like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's a good point. I'm going to write that down and think about that. Realizing means no. It's, it's knowing something that begins to come true in our lives. It's bringing to light every good thing that's at work in us to lead us to the king. Practicing the gospel in every area of life, including how you're going to treat your slaves. We're going to know the gospel is having a powerful effect on Philemon, not because he says he's going to heaven when he dies. Hey, that's great, Philemon. But the way we're going to really know that the gospel has a powerful effect in your life is the way that you treat your wife, is the way that you treat your kids, is how you treat your neighbors, it's how you treat your slaves. Not because you have to. Remember, you got law on your side. You got verses on your side. You should do this splendid thing you don't have to do because he's living a bigger story. This is what it looks like, what he said last week, to begin to clean that window so people can see the sunrise. It's sharing the gospel, but it's also showing the gospel. With one act, Philemon could show people what the gospel looks like, and he wouldn't have to preach a single word. Now, there's a lot that, that is going on here, and there's some more to unpack and I want to get into, but I want to pause for a moment. I want to allow God to speak to us because you might be stirring with something with God right now. And I want to give you a moment to reflect on how God might be calling you to wrestle with what's already being said in this letter. Here's a question to help that time. Is there a relationship where you've been doing what you had to do, but God is calling you to do what you don't have to do? Is there a relationship where right now, and you're thinking about it, and you're like, yeah, yeah, but I'm right. But the law supports me. But I have a verse for this. And God is like, yeah, 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 I know. But I'm asking you to do something you don't have to do. Something splendid that might show a bigger story.
Would you allow a moment for God to speak to you about this? You know, in a question like this, you might be thinking, well, gosh, I, I, I've been doing everything I have to do. Are you telling me I have to do this other thing now too? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm asking, is God asking you maybe to go somewhere where you, you do something you don't have to do? And I understand this could feel pretty weighty in some places. It could feel a little uh, dangerous. It could feel a little risky. It might feel a little reckless. It certainly feels more safe to just keep doing what you have to do. But I can't help but think that Paul is reflecting on a story that was passed on to him from Jesus, a story about a son who ran away from home. Son ran away from home, took money with him, spent it all, wasted it. When he came back to his father, he knew what the law would say. He understood that he had lost his rights as a son. He, he understood that he didn't have the right to, to be called this or that anymore. He knew legally that, that basically all he could hope for was that maybe he could be welcomed back as a slave, as a servant. Yet to his shock, the father recklessly welcomed him, not with punishment, but with a party. Everything in the world was on the side of the father, and the father said, yeah, I know I have the law, I know I have a verse, I know I have this, but I have my son. Because he believed a bigger story. Now let me tackle something here about this. This is kind of the elephant in the room. It is crystal clear that Paul is asking Philemon to treat Onesimus differently. That is crystal clear. And that could just be the point. I wish it was more clear that he was asking to set him free. I wish that was in there. I might be reading that into this. I'll be honest. I'll tell you why in a minute. I don't think I am. But I do know that there are good and godly people who read this letter and who say, you know, he's not asking to set him free. He's just asking to change the way he treats him and not punish him. And you know, honestly, in 
the 2,000 years that we've been trying to figure out this thing called the resurrection, we don't have a fantastic track record in this. In fact, there have been some people who have dared to use this letter to excuse and authorize slavery. They've actually stood in pulpits like this with the Bible in one hand saying, okay, well, hey, you know, look what Paul does here. So see, slavery is okay as long as you treat your slaves okay. To our shame and dishonor. And honestly, one of, the, one of the reasons why some of us are wondering why is the Christian voice seem to be diminishing in our nation in this time, it's because of the way we've abused that voice for way too long. I wish the Bible would say more sometimes. In fact, if I had a shot at rewriting the Bible, oh, I'd have so many improvements. I, I would clarify so many things. It would be so much better, I think. And one of the hardest parts of working out the resurrection is, is going, yeah, but where does it say what I want it to say? Where does it say that? If you look back on this time, this one scholar I thought was helpful, he, he said, Scripture does not sanction slavery. At the same time, it doesn't begin a political crusade against it. Well, what does it do? It sets forth principles of love to our fellow men, which were sure, as they have done, in due time to undermine and overthrow it without violently convulsing the then existing political fabric by stirring up slaves against their masters. There's a thought here that, again, in the early days of the resurrection, they're trying to figure out what this means, but there were some things that were said that were beginning to be implied and people began to understand. And, and this is why you come out and three days after the resurrection, people aren't like, yeah, we got this Christianity thing all figured out. We're still figuring it out. We're still trying to understand the ramifications of the resurrection. And it's been a couple thousand years. I suspect we won't figure it out in the next 2,000 either. We're still understanding. But some principles were set in play. And what we're always doing as Christians is going, okay, well, the principle never changed. He said, love one another. The question is, how do we begin to apply that? I do wish that there were verses that more laid out some more clear positions on things, but I think what's happening, this is my opinion, I think what's happening is that Scripture is aiming deeper. Instead of calling us to overthrow systems of slavery, it's calling us to overthrow the hearts that want to own other people. There's something about the changing of hearts that will change lives and change lives that can change laws in ways that just fighting doesn't do. And he says, as they have done, the rising sun of the resurrection has led more and more people throughout the last few thousand years to go, wait a minute, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then we better change this. People like William Wilberforce, people like Harriet Tubman, people like Dr. King. We do know that when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, became a Christ follower, it began to change the way that slaves were treated. Didn't get rid of it completely, but it was vastly different under his reign from what had been done before. Because the sun was rising. This is something I was reminded this week as I was reflecting on Dr. King and reading through some of his writings. He, I believe, was trying to apply the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to racial equality in our nation. And the path he chose was the path he saw that Christ took of nonviolence and reconciliation. Dr. King, and even though some people opposed what he was doing uh, from both sides of this, he said, I believe that friendship and understanding with my opponent is my goal, not defeating them. He believed that God could change hearts and both sides could work together to resolve justice. And he really believed that if you could have two hearts that could come together and work to change this, it would create something he called the beloved community. 
This is what Paul is saying. Paul, Remember, Paul is saying, I could order you to do this. I could just make it so. And we, I could just say, you know what? God doesn't want slavery anymore, so deal with it, and let's just throw that bomb into the Roman Empire, and let's see where it all goes. Or he could say, I'd rather appeal, Philemon, for it to start with you. This is cleaning the window so the light can shine in. When someone says, what's the reign of God all about? Well, let me preach you a sermon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's the reign of God all about? It's where slave owners set free their slaves and they become brothers. Oh, that's what the reign of God is going to be? Oh, yeah. One day it's all going to be like that. Oh, now I see. Paul writes this in another letter. He, he explains our calling. 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors. We're speaking on behalf of the Messiah. We get to say to people what Jesus would say, what we think he would say. It's like God was making his appeal through us. We implore people on the Messiah's behalf to what? To what? To be reconciled to God. So that's the sharing. We say to someone, hey, be reconciled to God. That's what we share with our mouths. But how do we show people what it means to be reconciled to God? Philemon, this is what Paul is saying. Philemon, you lead a church in your home. Every Sunday, I know because I'm hearing about it, every Sunday you get up and tell people, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. And Philemon, you're doing a phenomenal job, A+. I keep hearing the reports. But Philemon, do you really want to show people what biblical reconciliation looks like? Set them free. You'll preach a sermon louder than anyone you've ever preached. Now, this is a pretty big request, so how does Paul close his appeal. We'll look at verse 17. So anyway, if you reckon me a partner in your work, receive him as though he was me. Wow. Treat this runaway slave as if he was an apostle, your friend, your partner. Verse 18, if he's wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, put that down on my account. Again, he has to remind him, this is still me, Paul. I'm still writing this with my own hand. These are my words. I'll pay you back. And then I, I love this. Far be it for me to remind you that you owe to me your own very self. <laughs> hey, finally, you know that whole eternal destiny and your life's been changed and everything about your life's different. Yeah, that's on me, but don't let that weigh too much in what I'm asking you to do. Yes, my brother, I do want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the King. I, I want you to hear this. There's some grace in the fact that Paul knows what he's asking is hard. Some of you are thinking about that question. Where is it in a relationship that I'm doing what I have to do, but God's calling me to do something I don't have to do? I want you to hear that God is also saying, I know that's difficult. I am sure that Philemon is 10 times as wealthy as Paul is, but Paul is putting his money where his mouth is. He's saying, hey, I'll pay any debt he owes you. That's called skin in the game. It reminds me of someone else who said, I don't owe that debt, but I will gladly take that debt upon myself. And I will pay that so that you can see God. It's Jesus Christ. And Paul ends with this. And let me come back to this. If you say, well, Thomas, what's tipping the scales for you that he's asking for more than just be nice to this guy? I think it's verse 21. This is for me. Paul says, as I write this, I'm confident that you'll do what I say. In fact, I know you'll do more than I say. But at the same time, get a guest room ready for me. Now, he's in jail saying, get a guest room ready for me. I'm hoping you see that through your prayers, I'll be granted to you. I'll get free. I'll come see you. We'll hang out. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in King Jesus, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, all my colleagues here. They all said hi. Okay, yeah. Tell them I said hi. Okay, yeah. And Luke said hi too. 
The grace of the Lord, King Jesus, be with your spirit. Now, I love verse 21. For me, this tips the scales. And seeing that Paul is saying this, Philemon, I know your heart. I'm confident you'll do what I ask, and you won't charge this guy, and you won't punish him. But in fact, I'm confident you're going to do more than that. You're going to set him free. He's not going to be a prodigal. He's going to be a son. You're not going to pull out the chains. You're going to pull out the fatted calf. You're not going to throw him in prison. You're going to throw him a party. You're going to give him your ring. You're going to give him your robe. You're going to welcome him back as your new brother in Christ. And you're going to show your city that the chains you have to Jesus are stronger than the chains of culture, prejudice, and status. That's what you're going to do. Now, is it fair to ask Philemon to give up what is lawfully his now? Is it fair to ask Onesimus to walk into a situation where he could go east and be free and he could go west and no? Is it, free to, is it fair to reward Onesimus for running away? What kind of God rewards people for running away? Well, prodigal fathers do. This is called grace. The grace of the Lord King Jesus. Let me close with this. Philemon shows us this, this real-life example. While the gospel is bigger than we ever imagined, it's also way smaller. While the gospel, while the resurrection is going to change everything, it also just changes one life at a time. This man, Onesimus. Now, the question that we're all wondering probably at this point, I know I am, is this. So, what happened? Did he set him free? Where's the sequel to Philemon? Philemon 2, faster and more furious. I want to read that. I want to see what happened. There is none. They didn't put that one in. Another thing I would have put in the Bible. Standing on that door, holding a piece of paper, the door opens. There's Philemon. He hadn't read the letter yet. He sees that runaway slave. What's his first reaction? Onesimus hands the sheet to him. He reads it. What happened? We don't know. We don't know that story. We can only hope that the gospel had its powerful effect. But let me ask you, how's your story going? How will your story play out? Where do you need the gospel to have its powerful effect in you, in your life? Where is God calling you to do something that you don't have to do? We all would agree, you don't have to do that. But God says, but what does love require? To show people that the resurrection is real. Maybe there's a spouse you need to forgive. Maybe there's a son you need to welcome. Maybe there's a neighbor you need to meet. Maybe there is an issue or a cause you need to step into and you step in because you say, you know, I don't have to do this. I could just be safe, but the resurrection's calling me in. When we forgive people, we don't have to forgive. When we release people, we don't have to release. When we free people, we don't have to free. This is how we clean the window. This is how we share and show the sunrise of the resurrection. May it be true. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that in your wisdom you preserved a letter written from one man to another, personal letter, on how to work out the resurrection into some of the ugly realities of life. Our lives have a lot of ugly realities too. Lord, I know that when you call us to apply the resurrection to live out a bigger story, it's, it's sometimes messy and confusing, and it's not always all that we understand or want it to be. But today we say to you, I know what I have to do, God. 
but I also know what you're calling me to. And I pray for the courage to do what I don't have to do so that people can see the bigger story.